Welcome back to UAP Studies. Uh, today we have a fantastic guest on the show. We do have Sean Cahill who is joining us and we do have Louie who is returning as well to co-host on UAP's podcast, uh, Studies Podcast I should say. Thank you Louie for joining us again. How's it going my man? It's going really well. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I've been super excited with our, our lineup of people we've had in past weeks and upcoming weeks and especially today, you know, uh, we talk a lot about ATIP and uh, the videos, the Tic Tac and everything else. And we have somebody who witnessed that firsthand, right? So yeah. um, his uh, reputation precedes him. He's a super credible guy, and we're excited to have him on the show. Perfect. Well, without further ado, Sean Cahill, welcome to UP Studies, my man. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, the first question I have, because your position, uh, you were on a Princeton, uh, right? Okay, so and your position was uh, Chief Master of Arms. Now, I'm Canadian. I'm not quite familiar with the military uh, process, but what is a Chief Master of Arms? The Chief Master at Arms is the uh, Chief Law Enforcement Officer on board. Um, On board the USS Princeton, I was actually the only law enforcement officer on board. Um, But in the Navy, that extends from a, a time when that person would have been the one who kept the ammunition and uh, cutlasses locked up so the rabble of the crew didn't use them for a mutiny in between battles. But he would also oh, okay. he would also be the person who would who would train the crew in the use of those weapons. So he would unlock them, take them out, train them to use them. He was also the disciplinarian on a ship. And those things translate to our our modern Navy, where we work in anti-terrorism, force protection, law enforcement, discipline, interrogation, things like that. Oh, nice. So that was your, how long have you been on the Princeton? Like, uh, what was your uh, amount of years on there? I had actually just gotten on board the Princeton. Let me think. So the Tic Tac was in November. Um, I had gotten on board the previous June, actually. And it had been a pretty whirlwind uh, few months of indoctrination because I had made, uh, I had made the rank of chief petty officer um, shortly after I'd gotten on board. I had the position of chief master at arms, but now I had attained the rank of chief master at arms. And there was a three month initiation period um, that doesn't really exist anymore in the modern Navy that uh, that we had to go through to to earn our anchors. And right, right after that, we went into a, a workup, which was the Tic Tac event. So it was very, okay. very shortly after that. That was probably the first time I really got back to work after uh, we finished getting uh, initiated. Oh wow, that's a hell of an initiation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of the the uh, Tic Tac videos, let's just give people a bit of a, a background history. A lot of them have seen the government released, um, you know, grainy videos that we have the gimbal and the Tic Tac, and some have even seen uh, like a, a triangle. I believe that was off the East Coast. But um, basically, in a nutshell, what sort of happened that day? You saw things on the radar, and you know, sort of lead us through. Uh, what led to these uh, these videos being uh, captured, basically? Yeah, that that day was was the culmination of, of numerous days of uh, Senior Chief Kevin Day, myself, uh, Petty Officer Gary Voorhees, uh, a few other people on board Princeton, trying to track down what Kevin had been seeing on radar and others had been seeing. And they were trying to run the ground whether or not these were actual objects, whether they may have been atmospheric issues or, or issues in the system because there had been a recent upgrade. Um, 
but I was up on the bridge, um, which is not a normal place for the, the master at arms to be, but I was feeling, I was doing a favor for my navigator and also kind of doing a favor for my career because I wasn't, um, I wasn't one of the people that was going to be in the spotlight at that command. So I had to do a few extra things to, to, um, stay competitive. But, um, we had been, Kevin had been calling me on the bridge via just a, a telephone line and asking me to, to change the course of the ship at certain intervals, which I was able to do because we were operating in a box where just as long as the ship stayed in that box, everybody else was able to get the job done. So those of us on the bridge had certain parameters we were able to, to maneuver in. So during that time, we were, we were facing the ship here and there, and he was calling up and asking me, you know, do your guys see anything? Keep your lookouts, eyes on the sky. I need eyes in the sky. And I kept having to differentiate between the, 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 the training op we were on and what Kevin was doing because I was getting frustrated because I've got, you know, operational people over here yelling at me, find, find the submarine. And I've got a friend of mine and a colleague calling me on a telephone going, find the, I'm being jokey, but find the UFO. And so yeah. I, I was torn between what I was doing and what had, but um, leading up into the day, and I, I still haven't put to put exactly together when Commander Fravor, Lieutenant Commander, or Commander Dietrich and the others were out there with the F-18s, because I didn't sortie them, versus when I witnessed what I did in the sky. But at around, it was late at night, around past 10 o'clock at night, I'm pretty sure, um, very dark, fully, uh, completely clear sky, um, bright stars. I don't recall moonlight that night, but I had gone out onto the port side, and I was... This was at one of those times when Kevin had asked us to furiously scan the horizons. We were, we were, it was supposed to be out there ahead of us or something. We were seeing it on radar. So tell me if your, your guys can see it in the sky. And I went out to the port side and I started scanning with the binoculars. And as soon as I got up to the, the bow of the ship at about 2000 feet off, just off the port bow. So just off of center line, there were five or seven lights. And I'm not sure exactly which, because they were all moving very, very luminous. And all moving towards the center of this, there's a perceived spiraling in that was going on. So they were, they were like, and then they were gone. Each one at a time, though. Spiral in, gone. Spiral in, gone. And all of them went. And I turned to the lookout and I asked, we using salty sailor expletives, asked him if he'd seen that. And he, he concurred. And then we literally just sat there for a minute or two, looking around, waiting to see something else. And it was kind of anticlimactic. I went in the ship. I think I called Kevin, told him what was going on. I may not have told him till the next morning. I'm not sure because it was not right. there. There wasn't anybody to report it to. The chain of command wasn't tracking it, but Kevin was tracking it and reporting to the captain. And, and you know, there were other people involved, but it wasn't going to interrupt our off. And so the next morning I got down to the, I woke up in the chief's mess and went out and had breakfast with the guys and, um, Kevin and a couple of other people had, had smiles on their faces and they're, I'm like, what? Cause I was kind of ticked off. I was like, what do you got me chasing up there on the bridge? This is ridiculous. Right. And they were like, you need to go check your high side email and which is our, our sipper net where we, we send uh, you know, secret and above, um, correspondence and things like that. And I went into the back and we had our own little annex where we could, we could check our email and I, they gathered behind me and they watched me watch the same video we've all seen, the tic-tac going across the FLIR, changing phase. Um, I, I will say that it was pretty clear. To, it was a lot more 
when people ask me if I've seen a more high definition video, I, it's finally come. I finally, after doing a lot of looking on my computer, looking at the, you know, the versions that have come out and everything else, I saw a better quality version of the same video we're looking at a higher definition of the same video. So meaning it was just a, a better, a better um, conversion rate or something when they, when they gave it to us that day. I remember there being a lot more discernible. I don't want to say electricity, but there's, um, you know, the Tesla balls we used to, they used to sell at sharper image. I think it's a glass ball. You know, you just put your finger on it and it dances. It looked like that kind of dancing plasma on the, um, on the FLIR. But that's the only major difference that, that, that I have from, from the videos we've seen, but I saw the videos and I was like, I knew exactly what I was looking at. I knew I was looking at an image on a FLIR that didn't look like on any image on a FLIR I'd ever seen before. And so a lot of things seemed obvious at the time that we were looking at something without control surfaces that it, it as we called it at the time that it zorched out of the screen. Um, it's a, it's a word we use for fast moving stuff in the surface Navy. Um, and it just didn't fit because we, we also, we're all sitting there as tacticians and, and career sailors piecing together all the information we'd had in the last few days and just turning around and looking at each other and just a lot of big smiles and nodding. Like, this is a big deal. This is, this is going to be something. I bet. And I bet. the, uh, the only tale to that is I got, I got back to shore, uh, at the end of the operation, I went up to the. North Island Naval Air Station police station to actually steal some uh, some crime scene tape because I had been the one who ordered it there before I transferred. So I knew they had plenty and um, saw a couple of my friends there. And one of my friend's wife was on the Nimitz and she was an intelligence specialist and had been paying attention to all of these things. She was one of the, you know, you always got those people in the room that are watching everything. And um she knew that she said the master at arms on that ship were, were told to sequester the pilots in their staterooms until some folks who were in civilian clothes came on board and debriefed them. Now I've never, Great. I haven't in all of the last few years, I haven't had a chance. I actually haven't met any of the pilots. It, there hasn't been a chance for us to need to, to work together other than to, you know, do a little side support um, with, you know, stuff like that, but it hasn't been imperative that we talk. So I've never ran down whether or not that actually happened for them, but that's that's pretty much the whole story of the Tic Tac for that week. Great, and they mentioned something about like the people that arrived in civilian clothes, like it was like within twenty minutes or something like that after the pilots came back. Like it was really really fast. Well, we were twenty like, minutes off of shore. That's that's the regular. Uh, that would be yeah. the regular transit time for the area we were in to the the fleet concentration area here. So. Okay, so not 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 a big deal that it only took twenty minutes. No, not to me. Not if not if we were if we were tracking this for about a week, and our commanding officer, even though he seemed aloof of the subject the whole time to me, I, right. I I'm probably not. He, I mean, the information did get back to where it needed to, and someone did come fly out and allegedly right. take radar tapes, and it was studied later by ATIP and and, and all of that. So it's a valid event. I think we we're we're always trying to put an easy answer on it. Oh, they didn't care. Oh, they really cared, or something like that. And yeah. I think it's somewhere in between. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, ATIP, and as we know, Luis Elizondo, um, very instrumental in this whole movement, and also a good friend of yours. You've appeared in a lot of uh, interviews with him, and again, same type of humble, 
just I don't know what it is, but I'm hell bent on trying to help figure it out and give people that voice. And uh, he mentioned the five observables. And uh, I've seen you on a few other interviews and they put you on the spot and it's like, uh, it's kind of hard to know what they all are. So I have them here just uh, so to take everybody off the hook and also for our uh, listeners that may not know. So um, one of these five, any one of these five would be a game changer in itself, the characteristics it would display. And this and many display all five. So we talk about uh, things like positive lift or anti-gravity, things that can move without control surfaces, or without any propulsion. There's no heat. You know, you see them on the FLIR. They're this fuzzy electrostatic bubble, but it's cold in the center. It's like the exact opposite of what we think. Uh, and then they have instantaneous acceleration. That kind of speaks for itself. Uh, and you look at what the G-force would be with something going from not to uh, 2,500 miles an hour, it's 50 to 200 Gs. It would kill anything that that we know um, could survive that, right? Uh, these things have hypersonic velocity. So hypersonic meaning five times the speed of sound plus. So that's 3,700 miles per hour. And uh, even Luis Elizondo has been on a record saying, yeah, it's hypersonic, but we're not talking about just barely. Some of these things go five, eight, 10,000 miles an hour. Uh, right. You know, it's mind blowing. Uh, and no and sonic booms. There's no, no sonic, sonic booms. booms you know, yeah. uh, they display low observability or cloaking, you know, the ability to sort of conceal themselves from radar ish. You know, they're very well concealed. Uh, and then fifth, uh, the transmedium travel, you know, the ability to seamlessly move through space or air or water, uh, regardless of the physics of those mediums, you know, air being thinner than water. And it doesn't seem to matter that they can go 500 miles an hour in the water and our best torpedoes go less than 200 miles an hour, as far as we know. So uh, they display all these crazy uh, characteristics. And even the Tic Tac video, uh, you said that it seemed, it seemed to come almost set from a suborbital um, elevation, oh. 70 or 80,000 feet, uh, right down to sea level instantly. Yeah, and, and there's nothing out there that we could even think uh, that we would have or anybody else would have just because humans maneuver. are humans. Even if it is Russian, how and do you get maneuver. somebody to run that thing? You know, that one maneuver because a lot of people I don't know if uh, how I mean, you guys are uh, associated with the SCU, right? Uh, so, so you guys have a you know, this is a different perhaps a different audience, but not everybody understands orbital dynamics what it takes to get into orbit, what it takes to get out of orbit and get back down here. And nothing comes straight here. The energy yeah. expenditure and the amount of energy required for a braking maneuver, let alone from 80,000 feet to a, a meter above the water in an instant without vaporizing a quarter, you know, you know, I don't know how many cubic yards of water around you. You know, it, it's, I can't even wrap my head around it because as I said, I'm a sailor, not a scientist, but Right. But there's, we have reached this point where we now have a list of five things that we're seeing, five observables. And I want to be really kind of simplistic with this. Five things we can observe that the moment you take them to, to mainstream academia or science, they go, that's impossible. They don't even want to see the data. And, and we're, it's taken this long to go, no, 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 listen, five things. We've observed them. We've clocked them. We've looked at them. We can show it to you. We don't know what it is. But you're saying impossible, and I'm showing it to you. So you just need to yeah. move your brain over to possible. And now we figure out the who, what, where, when, why, how. But right. it's been that paradigm shift of, and for the public, it's, is this real? Yes, it's real. They jump right to what is it, who is it, what does it mean to me? 
the scientific mm-hmm. community, the academic community just needs to be shown that it's, it's, it's researchable, it's repeatable. It's, it's going to, it's something they're going to be able to sink their teeth into it. And we're, we're getting there and it's the momentum. It's insane. Um, so I just want to say that what you brought up with the five observables, that's vastly important that we keep talking about that. So have you noticed a huge change now within the scientific community about this, this topic? I have. It's it unfortunately been based initially upon a lot of personal trust. Who knows who, who's willing to accept what from whom, um, you know, and, and it's, there's a lot of mental bona fides checking going on for people going, well, where, oh, well, they work with this program, so I don't want to talk to them or, or it's unfortunate, but this is something, the amount of courage it takes for somebody that's in the mainstream that has a stake in their livelihood in, in science to step out and say, yeah, this is real. And I'm, I think it's incredibly important as any of us would, if we realized that, and now, now I'm going to move forward with it. It's safer now, but it's still not, it's still not the way to go, you know? Right. No, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, uh, I believe that true disclosure comes from men and women in the service, you know, in military that are coming forward saying, Hey, this is some of the stuff that we've observed and some of the stuff that we've experienced. And it is an experience. Like it's, it's something that you take home with you after you're done, you know, doing your time in the military. Yeah. So I think that true disclosure is coming through, you know, men and women in the service and, uh, you're, you're one of those people taking the, the lead there and definitely helping some people come out of the UAP closet, if you will, and speak up. So that's good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So where do you think it's headed from here? I mean, uh, Luis Elizondo come out and say, I can do more as a public civilian than I can going through red tape, uh, you know, working within the confines of those programs. And uh, he's aligning himself with people such as you. And, you know, there's this big movement, uh, um, you know, he chose not to continue with the show on the History Channel, Unidentified. Um, he seems to want to take less of a, a media or entertainment-based approach and more of a, an outbound approach. So, like, what can you tell us? What's coming in the future? What, uh, what does this look like moving forward and with your help, of course? Well, I think we're going to see, um, first of all, you're going to see more of, the, more of the same from us, which a lot of people are, are going to say, well, you guys are kind of quiet. Well, we work behind the scenes. We, we link people up together. Um, we're less interested. I, I appreciate you saying we're humble. It's, I, I will say that we're less interested in spotlight and fame and that kind of thing, because we've seen how that's poisoned the subject, the, um, the cult yeah. of personality and the ego that goes around it and the need to be a, be special or the one or, or to have some information or a photograph that someone else doesn't have. We, we've been inundated by that over and over again and, and disappointed. Um, so there's that side of it that is the, the public interface and um, the, the deconflicting of, of, of mis, misinfo, disinfo, and fiction. But then I think the most important part is that we've reached major milestones in government and science and industry where they are paying attention. We, you know, with the passing of the NDAA and the things that I think that are going to trickle out of that, whether it's um, lasting oversight a, a um, kind of a, a clearinghouse for all the data that's going to that's going to trawl the government archives and, and crack open the, the the programs that may or may not have existed, and finally you know unlock the data and then bring it safely into on the classified side at first, but where a modern eye can look at it and say, okay, obviously 
we have an overclassification with our military system, with our with our intelligence system, where, where things just go away and they never come back. And that has to change. And that this yeah. is a great place to start. And I think we're going to see a lot of those things probably happen. I know that there's a lot of folks um, really trying to look at this as a big picture item too, because science is going to get into the details and academia is going to find the things that that interest them. And let's be real, the media is eventually going to find the things that build ad revenue dollars to keep their machine going. And then they're going to own the subject in the public eye. Um, the, but if we don't have generalists looking at the entirety of phenomena and trying to figure out what this means for the entirety of humanity, not just for a niche industry or, 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 or better telecom or better aerospace, um, if we don't figure out the what's going on, the big questions that the people want to know, we're going to get ourselves caught with our pants down because we've already seen that something operates at a level that just makes us look silly. Yeah. And it seems yeah. like our interest has never gone away. I mean, even if you want to connect the dots on a big timeline, go back to Roswell, something happens, you know, they, they get inquiries and everything else. They have Project Sign and Project Grudge and Blue Book. And then in 69, they say, hey, we didn't find anything really worth watching. Uh, we're not going to pursue this anymore. And then for it to be acknowledged with those videos released in 2017 and then 2020, the uh, Pentagon agrees. Yeah, we, we sanctioned those videos. We did, in fact, so for the skeptics that say, well, you know, I don't believe or, you know, we have five observables, not enough. It's not like these are fringe videos that somebody captured on a shaky cam that are becoming popular or trending. This is government released footage, you know, like 20 years ago, if you told someone into this topic that the government's going to release legitimate UAP footage, you wouldn't believe it, you know, so it, oh, yeah. it's definitely feels like the start of some type of disclosure, but it's maybe not the disclosure with the capital D that we think it's lowercase where it just becomes this organic web of information. And eventually you can't really have naysayers when there is evidence, you know, you guys are supporting factual, measurable, you know, data that science nuts want and crave is there. It's not like it's take my word for it. You have, you know, there's telemetry on this type of stuff. So I think that's really, that's positive moving forward for sure. Yeah, there's a history of programs that can be shown going back, although, as you said, all the way to World War II, that should indicate to any casual observer that interest was maintained over 70 years. For sure. it, it, it should be a simple checkers move for you to say, okay, someone saw something worthwhile that could, could gain power for, for our side, doesn't matter who that is, and yeah. then did what they could to guard it until they understood it. And then kept finding out they didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. So the, the power vacuum kept occurring. I can see that it makes sense to me. And it's yeah. not something I need a long, you know, a group of apologists to come forward and explain. Um, but cracking those things out of that classified system and changing the way that we do business so that you and I and, and everybody else going forward that's putting their heart and their soul into this now in the public eye, that it doesn't turn around and go back behind that curtain again. Yeah. You know, yeah. Building up that momentum where it's like a, a you know speeding train is just yeah. going to keep going, right? Yeah, yeah. No, so far so good. Uh, did you ever have an incident? Like, did you ever have a sighting yourself before two thousand four? You know, that's interesting. I was talking about something similar on a on a show yesterday. Um, I had thought I had a few sightings throughout my life, and then after filming Unidentified with Lou and getting to know a couple people on the crew and having a 
getting into these daily chats that we're all in now, these signals and group meetings that everybody's taken over by. Um, they said, hey, why don't you write down, you know, meditate like you do, clear your mind, and then just write down everything weird, everything questionable that you ever remember, you know. And it was once I did that, I had filled a whiteboard in my garage with um, with really anomalous events in life. And I'm not, I, I had a pretty pretty sharp uh, razor for, for shaving off what I considered worthwhile speaking about what I did. Right. And um, it, turned in, it turned out that I've had a lot of sightings. Um, I've had a lot of sightings of, of a few of the same thing. Um, and then not. And I, again, people go, why do you think that is, Sean? Man, I don't know. There, we could go, we could have a six hour show on, on consciousness perception yeah, sure. and things like that. But looking back and then going, wow, all that. And then oh four. And yeah, five months later, I saw, I, I don't, I, sorry, I was going to say my first as if it was, you know, as if everybody gets one, but I saw my black, uh, a black triangle, you know, and I've, oh, nice. I've been, I've seen daylight B2 bombers, nighttime B2 bombers. I've been on the, I've been on the flight line when every manner of, of aircraft, including the F-117 and I've guarded, I've guarded uh, Air Force One before I've been around aircraft for 20 years. What came over my house was two football fields wide, no lights, going way too slow, matte black. And all I could hear over it was the wind whistling over the over the hull. And then it, it went over and then it turned on its port side and it it receded. That's the only way to put it. Because it either it either got smaller or it went away way too fast. And, and as you said, no sonic boom, no, no vacuum pockets, anything like that. And I live under the landing corridor of of F8 of three airports and the F-18s from the carriers. So there's the fact that you don't hear a helicopter on our call right now is crazy. Right. And so I, when I say I know wh what our what our black triangle aircraft look like, whatever manner of them they are, none of them look like that. They don't operate like that. They can't operate like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to do with that. You know, whether it's because I'm in a fleet concentration area or whether it's because I'm on, I'm on the neurodivergent spectrum. I don't know. I don't feel special. I just have seen things. So, yeah. And, you know, and most people, like, um, even when I started getting into, let's say, the podcasting or even getting involved with MUFON, had people at work sort of make fun of, you know, oh, this is the UFO guy, which is bound to happen. But then I had a bunch of people approach me and tell me, like, you know, oh, my grandfather saw something or my dad saw something. Like, everybody's family member, somebody saw something of significance. And that happens within the military as well. I mean, you all have family members. Family members see things that piques our curiosity. And after something that what you went through, how does that make you feel like being in the military and thinking there's things flying in the sky that even the most powerful military in the world can't even figure out? You know, there was, there was a time when um, I thought that it, and maybe it's me taking an easy answer, but in 04, I decided, ah, it must be us because of the way that, that my chain of command responded. I was like, they're so aloof and confident. That must be our tech being, and we must be out here for something I don't understand. Um, and at that point in my life, I'd kind of put a lot of this stuff behind me. You know, I still, still was interested in UAP, but I didn't take it very seriously. It really didn't affect my life. Um, there was a time when I got in the last four or five years when 
it occurred to me, what if this is an invasion? You know, coming up with the easy answers we all look at, you know, what is it? Because they're not saying hello. They're not, you know, you got your picture in the background. They're not waving like that. You know, they're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and why are that's, they? That's, yeah. it's not waving. It's just holding some guy's arm. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're, yeah you know, you're right. <laughs> but in general, that's, yeah, it's not, it's not, they're not showing up at the party. And yeah. so I've ranged all over the place with it. And um, I don't mean to get too philosophical, but we all live a personal life. You know, we're all living in a society. You've got, a, you've got thousands of years worth of fictionalized coding and language behind you that we've developed to communicate things with each other. You know, it's not real. We developed everything we're using here right now. Yeah. Um, and it could all go away in an instant. We could develop something new. And again, getting kind of deeply philosophical with it. When I look in a microscope, I see thousands of protozoa and animals that don't even know I exist. And I'm walking around them in a circle and I'm transporting them through a medium and they don't even know the medium exists. Right. And so when I start thinking of beyond my ego that, well, naturally there's something bigger than you, bro. Um, and my, my, my eye only wants to look up one or two levels. It doesn't want to think that there's something walking around my Petri dish right now going, hey, Larry, come look at this. This jackass thinks he figured something out, you know, yeah. and they would be, pardon my language, they would be at a, um, they would be at a level I would never conceive, perceive of anything. I would never bump into their, their existence whatsoever. But if they wanted to talk to me, they might be able to do something. Yeah. Um, and I would probably not understand it. And so... That's one aspect of this phenomenon. You know, I just described something that that's, blows our mind and is greater than us and, and all of that. Now, if that exists, as I surely do to that, that slide, well, then everything in between exists as well. So that means there's, there's material animals like me with boxes moving around, doing things that are more advanced than me. It's right. it's not a stretch, but we have lived here at the bottom of a gravity well for all of our existence, peering upward into the darkness, going, "Nah, we're the only ones here." Yeah, nah, <laughs> this is all for us. Our Creator yeah. created all of us and imbued us with, and, and we're awesome, and we'll be here. And you know, so excuse me, I I, I I digress, but I can imagine just about anything at this point. Yeah, it is the the height of human ignorance too to say that you know there can't be anything or you know we're very good at knowing everything until we don't and even the things that we think we've you know invented we only just discovered I mean mathematics has been around we just figured out how it all works so uh, to, for anyone to say it's definitely this or this nobody's an expert even quote unquote UAP expert nobody knows nobody has the answers to this stuff. It's only because there's been a mass accumulation of uh, people wanting to find out. The thirst for an answer is greater than the evidence. And that's good enough, you know, because if you don't have that, that force of people that just are unrelenting and not going to let this thing go, we may never get there. You know, like you agree that they've had continuous interest in this since the 40s. It didn't stop, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80, and they just decided to fire up ATIP. Yeah. It's just literally taken that long to try to even grasp, you know, even if they do have recovered craft, try to figure out how that works. Like it's way above your pay grade. It could, you know, if it's from a civilization that's hundreds or thousands of years more advanced, you can play with that thing all day long. You're not going to figure it out. So yeah. nobody really knows. Uh, it's all exciting, but 
sometimes it can get kind of fringe. You know, I, I like the fact that we refer to things as UAPs, not UFOs anymore, because the stigma is there. And, you know, it makes it hard for somebody in a, a position of authority to take it seriously when it feels like, you know, 1970s science fiction. Well, it's a scientifically, um, it's a poor title. UFO is, is a poor title to use because so few of those things are exhibiting flying characteristics and it just it shows the yeah. ignorance oh man i'm going to tick people off because i am an <laughs> i am i am an amateur scientist i'm an armchair scientist we need less amateur and armchair scientists making the proclamations in uap studies and we need yeah. we need more and as jealous as i might be everybody that had time to go to college then i didn't which isn't true either um you know what I mean? It's, it's like yeah. the PhDs need to be on need to be on the beat with this. And the rest of us need to be the one, you know, the, the armchair folks need to be the ones to stop saying these things. But we have we have. I don't know, I, I, I just get to the point where we hit we hit we avoid this subject. If people people they have expectations and wants. They say, a lot of times in an interview, someone will say, Sean, what do you want it to be? Because I won't say what I think it is because that changes mm -hmm. 10 times a, a year, frankly. Yeah. What do I want it to be? I want it to be something that was worthwhile of the journey. I want, it, I want it to be something that was worth my time, your time, and everybody else's, and that it's not just something we're never going to, that we're just seeing shine through a little bit. Um, but a lot of other people I talk to, they really want it to be something specific. Right. And I won't, I won't list out a bunch of stuff, but it, it needs to mean something specific for them. And I've taken all of that out. I don't care anymore. I truly don't. I just, I'm, I'm so think of it as it from a traumatized person's perspective. It's just like, just stop beating me. Just tell me what you want and I'll do the yeah. dang thing and we'll move on. You know, that's what it feels like at this point. Yeah. I often said that it was kind of like a me too that's taken place with the UFO uh, world you know, like people are saying, you know, they've been, I wouldn't say abused, but there's some people in the past that, you know, uh, you know, when you look at the credibility that they have and they've been told to be silent on the subject or consequences should happen. We're not hearing that as much now. Uh, I mean, I don't know if anybody's approached you or Lou and keep your mouth shut, but I mean, so far, as far as I can tell, that's not happening anymore. So there seems to be a shift or an energy that's building up with this disclosure thing, whatever that looks like. Right. I've cautioned some of my friends who are experiencers, and I've only cautioned them in that. Listen, no one's going to tell you not to talk. I'm just telling you there's consequences that come with every action. That's not a threat. Right. You know, but I'm not going to take that whiteboard I talked about and take a picture of it and put it on Twitter. Yeah. Right. That, that would be opening a can of worms that, that I would never get out of. You know, I would just constantly be inundated by questions about that stuff. And then people would make assumptions and they'd write stories for me that, that have me in them that I'd never even, never even lived. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's not cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's not cool at all. <laughs> you mentioned, so, uh, you mentioned trauma. Sorry to cut you off, Jason. Uh, did you have any, uh, like any trauma leaving the military as a result of this, or even just as a result of living a tough military life? I mean, everybody has some PTSD or you lose some comrades. That's a difficult thing to reckon with since you guys are still only human at the end of the day. So did this uh, have a negative impact on you when you left and, you know, talking with your family and that type of thing? It, it, um, it's had more of a negative impact since I've taken up the work, so to speak, in the last few years. Um, at the time, it didn't. I came home from that um, exercise and 
I had a lot of friends around. I think it was football season. And I, I told everybody there was no NDA or anything like that. And so I, I told them exactly what we had seen and described the video and everything else to them. And they believed me. No one called me crazy. Right. Um, and years later, those were the same people who were in higher leadership positions in the military calling me up and going, hey, man, that thing you told me about is in the New York Times today. Um, but I won't dodge the question. Um, I'm, I'm rated a 90% uh, disabled through the VA. Um, the majority of that is just broken parts and worn out parts from running on metal for 20 years um, and things like that and landing on it hard and stuff like that. But um, a portion of that is related to PTSD and generalized socialized anxiety. Um, we could, again, spend a six-hour show trying to get down to the nitty-gritty of that because the first 20 years of my life was, was as traumatic as any of ours. Um, right. And then the intervening time in the military, though it was something I chose to do, that was a pretty crazy environment to be in. Um, but I... For me, it was when I took off my uniform, I took off my my super suit. I, I was it turned out Tony Stark was a punk underneath all that stuff. You know what I mean? That's how I felt. Yeah. I felt like when I took it off, I was I didn't know who I was. My authority was with it. I didn't know how to stand up for myself without a a, a badge or a, a anchors on my collar. And um well, we never know where our trauma comes from exactly. So, you know, right. between Jung and Freud and, and the, his, his students, they like to help us through it. But at the end of the day, you have to decide, what do I want? And that was so for me, I was like, what life do you want to live? And that was when I, I became a meditator. I wanted to learn about myself. Why, why am I angry at people I've never met before? Right. Um, things like that. So I think that helps approach the... Uh, approach the study of this, trying to be as, as I hate to say selfless, that sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but to try to be, to have as least amount of self-interest in this incredibly interesting topic. I know that's hard to do, but there's, there's an aspect of it that's so personal, it's going to give you whatever you want and then ruin you. Yeah. And if you want to absorb a bigger spectrum, you have to flex that muscle. You have to meditate. And if this is all coming from you know, the string theory type or the Planck scale where everything's just potential energy until some consciousness makes it this versus that. So it, it kind of getting in touch with that emotional aspect. And even when you interview people that are experiencers, they say that there was no speaking. It was telepathic. It was mm -hmm. all on a on a, a mind level. And if you read reports, you know, like from Bob Lazar says that there was no control surfaces on the craft that he supposedly worked on. So they're not using mechanical means as kind of a, a, an old school society. They they've evolved to the point where they didn't blow themselves up through war. They've, you know, um, they realize that they're physical beings having a spiritual experience and use their, uh, you know, their talents collectively to do good things, right? So yeah. if we're going to evolve to that, I think we need to kind of, we need more of this type of information, more podcasts, more interviews with credible people. It, it really yeah. helps other people to, A, get the information, kind of connect their own dots, right? Make their own decision. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I've been going through um, a lot of fringe esoteric information, a lot of the alleged transcripts of... Um, of alien encounters and, you know, and, and I, I don't mean to smile around it. I feel like I'm kind of being a little mainstream by smiling right now, but I've taken in so much personal accounts in the last few months. That's what I, one of the things I've been focusing on is getting down to what, what are people saying? 
What are all right. the people saying when they come back? And there's so many, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of what I would call uh, analytical or emotional overlay where someone is seeing something and then applying what they want to see to it. And you can, but there are similarities there and it's time that we start pulling, pulling that continuity uh, from these, from these statements out and granted, uh, yeah, science first, right. then the psychology, you know, and then, and then the imaginative roaming of, of trying to, you know, throw the spaghetti against the wall and figure it out. But I think right. we're safe to start doing that. We we're looking at, there's a few different things that want to present itself to us. Uh, Jacques Vallée sees a control system. Um, I, I can see a control system easily because everywhere I look, I see a control system. Everything at some level controls some, there's always a bigger fish as, as, as Qui-Gon Jinn said. And so I'm not, I'm not worried about that. But when I get into uh, people trying to tell me that here's the name, here's the star system, it's in this constellation, then they start describing physics to me that don't make any sense. You know, they're, right. they're like, and coming up with the data points that are, that are, that are, that are usable out of that data is for somebody that, that is much smarter than I am that understands analytics and algorithms and psychology better than I. But at some point, I, I hope that we're modern enough, that we're advanced enough to go, can we just pour it through some algorithm? Can we pour all of this stuff through some algorithm and give it points to look at it? Can it give us a final report? Because, yeah. because as, a, as humanity, we still don't know what's going on. Fractional, if we're talking about the spiritual aspect, we're fraction, you know, we're balkanized across the world religiously. Ideologically, it's the same way. Is that, is that what the system's trying to deliver to us? Is it trying to, is the system trying to deliver unity of understanding or, or disparate nonsense? Because we, we go from science. We want to know what, what's, what is that flying in the sky? Who is flying it? What's his biology? What does it want? Yeah. That, yeah. At the end of the day, that's my most important question that I wanted. I want to know what it wants. You know, and you go back throughout history and you look at uh, the Betty and Barney Hill case. We were talking with Kathleen Martin not that long ago. There's a bunch of cases like that where, it's, you know, even the Travis Walton case um, where there is an abduction, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, like they see the strange craft, then they see the strange entities, then there's an abduction, then there's a memory lapse. Now, the thing is with UAP studies, I've always been, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I talk about the abduction case, cattle mutilations, because they're all, you know, connected. But when you, uh, when you heard about, you know, the, the pilots chasing the UFOs, it's almost like the UFOs have a consciousness to it. The, the entire ship has a consciousness to it. Um, even was it David Fravor that was saying, um, is, I hope I got his name right. I always butcher names. But uh, when he said he was going down to uh, see this TikTok that was above the water, it recognized him. Like he said he felt it, like it turned around and, and looked at him. So there's a consciousness to these crafts or to these orbs or whatever people are seeing. So that's the part that's really interesting. Is it them or is it their technology? I have a... Um... I guess it's time for me to, to clarify a story that I've kind of hinted at before. Um, some folks will know I have a silly little song that I wrote that some friends use for bumper music for their podcasts. Um, it's called Goblin Problems. Um, Goblin Problems. It's actually, it's a, this is kind of embarrassing. It's a rap song. It actually came out okay, which seems like it wouldn't if you're looking at me. 
Um, but, <laughs> but it's, it's just tongue in cheek, but it's, it's a recounting of an actual experience of mine. And it's how I dealt with that experience because it still doesn't make any dang sense. It happened right here in this house. Um, the short story is my wife and I had a, had an argument. We've been married for 21 years. I'm not ashamed to say that we had a, a lousy argument. Well, you know, all happens. And yeah, it happens. One of those ones where you end up sitting on the floor going like this to each other, kind of. Yeah. And um, and it stopped in the middle of the argument. Both of us completely chilled out like it was over in an instant. And I ended up I got up and walked to the top of the stairs in my house. And I looked out this small window that we have at the top of the stairs that faces due north. And I saw a this is all right. Here we go, Sean. We're going to tell people you're crazy uh i'm sorry but because i because that's the feeling that's the feeling we yeah. all go through it's a okay? safe place yeah. brother yeah. we it's got a safe you, place oh, yeah you the, can do this it's the internet man they're all <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a pot-bellied saucer so it was when i say pot-bellied it was kind of fat in the middle tapered to the edges the hint of some kind of dome on top a line going around the like a center line waistband that looked like it had these big rivets on it Okay. But it looked like it was rusted to heck, like it was just vertigreed and, and just corroded. And I said, Hey baby, and I'm I'm gesturing like this down the stairs. I go, Hey baby, come up here. You gotta see this. There's a there's a flying saucer over uh Jim's house. She comes upstairs, and as she's coming up behind me, I turn to my like I'm highly focused on the saucer. I turn to my right, and there's the occupant, the pilot. And it was, it was scary as hell. It was a very, very uh, aggressive looking type of gray that some people okay. describe. I was able to find pictures that looked just like what I saw on the internet, but I know I've, I've probably seen those before on the internet right. too. Right. Um, but I, I was enraged. Um, I, I pushed out the screen. I tried to climb up over the little, um, I tried to climb out the window and in, in the process of saying, of pointing and saying, I see you, expletive, I'm going to get you. And I, I remember pushing myself out the window as if I was pushing myself through water, going after, oh, the, wow. going after this guy. Oh boy. There's no coming back from telling this story. Um, <laughs> the next morning so that's where my memory of that argument ends i wake up in bed the next morning and well but i do i right before i wake up in bed i wake up laying in my driveway in my boxer shorts okay in a pool of light then i'm in bed and i wake up like this so the whole thing goes like that so i wake up and i remember last night i remember a minute ago i was in the the driveway okay and now i reach for my phone i look at the time it's 9 a.m my wife and kids have gone to work uh, normally i'm up making coffee doing this that and the other I, I get in touch with my wife and i'm like hey is everything you know doing that we drank too much last night check in with each other thing i don't know if that's familiar to everybody but um i let her i'm like hey are we okay she's like yeah we're all we're great i just didn't want to disturb you i want to let you rest when she got home all she knows is that all she remembered was that we had we had the argument and that I just said what I needed to say to make it all better. And we hugged and we went to bed. And that's all that she's got. Right. 
I, I have a whole lifetime full of memories. That's a memory. That's not a dream. Yeah. I know what dreams feel like. I know what that, yeah. I know what the driveway felt like. I know what the oil stain from where I used to park my truck felt like under my face. You know, it's the smell, right? All yeah. of it. Yeah. Full, full spectrum experience. What do we do with that? If we take that one, we, you know, we do the little hypnotic regression thing for me and we say, we're going to trust this guy. How do we? Because I, as a meditator and as someone who studied NLP and hypnosis and things like that, I know that if I trust you enough, you can lead me down any primrose path to anything that you want me to see. And so I just don't know how we're going to ever, until the phenomena says, even playing field, let's shake hands, let's have a negotiation and a landing kind of thing. I don't know how we're ever going to figure this out if what happened to me is connected to the phenomena. Assuming I'm not just a person having a dream who likes UFOs. Because I don't know. Right. Right. No, thank you for sharing that with us. That, uh, you know, those experiences, like I said, I, I 100% believe you. Um, these things happen and it's hard to talk about it. Like I said, it's like a Me Too movement where people are starting to come forward and saying, look, this is the stuff that I, you know, that I see. How did you meet uh, Lou Elizondo? How did that come about? A buddy of mine called me the day the New York Times article came out. And that led to me just furiously Google searching all kinds of stuff. Um, found TTSA, found that they were just up the road in Encinitas from me. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a go visit folks and just kind of guy. So I, I fired, an, fired off an email to TTSA. And I said, you know, attention, Lou Elizondo. My name is Sean Cahill. I was the chief master at arms on the Princeton. Um, I do recall the events of the week surrounding the Tic Tac event. Uh, I was paying attention. I was a law enforcement officer on board. If you, if you have any trouble corroborating the story of others in regards to the events, please let me know. I was just going to say, hey, if you need a, a BS filter, I'll help. And that's kind of what I've stuck around to help with. But um, Luke, it took about nine months uh, before I heard back from TTSA because they, they'd gotten, a, you know, it just took a long, when they came out, they got a lot of people interested. Um, and Lou and I, we spoke on the phone. Um, I told him where I was and everything else. He asked if uh, if a documentary film crew could come out to the house and, and with him and, and talk to me. I said, sure. They came out and filmed at the house. And then um, later that actually it was just a uh, history channel, but they came and filmed at the house. And then we went down by the waterfront and filmed the scene that, with Luis and I. And as soon as we were done, um, I asked if the mics were off and everything. And we yanked our mics and I told him, I said, Hey man, are you the real deal or not? And he was kind of like, what? Cause I was, I was challenging him. I got kind of, right. kind of got in his face. Cause I was like, are you like these jackass? There's some, pardon me. I, I, I swear sometimes I apologize. Um, you do. We, it's we, all right, man. I, yeah. We swear a lot. Okay. On We're on our okay. best okay. behavior. All right. Yeah. All, right. all right, cool. Um, um, but I was like, uh, there, there's a guy out there that claims to be FBI at the, before Lou came out, he was an FBI agent claiming all of these things he comes and goes in ufology and it doesn't make any sense he, I, I think somebody wanted to be fox Mulder, and in fact I, I don't think his his resume lives up to his what he says but i was worried that we were going to get another one of those that we were getting some three let just what everybody else was worried about some three-letter right. agency turkey coming out here trying to take something he can't prove and get rich off so i spent nine months before i met him i was a cop for 20 years i i'm Right. I wasn't a mall cop. People like to make fun of, you know, everybody and things like that. Look, the Navy spent a lot of money training. I utilized that. Training yeah. And I, I, I determined that he was the real deal. 
So when I met him, I, I kind of confronted him. He's like, no, I'm serious. And I said, so you're not just going to make TV shows about UFOs and, and all this other crap and make a bunch of money. He's like, no, man. In fact, I have a freaking where I have an op. I think, you know, we've spoken military terms, even though these are not accurate. OK, right. but he's like, I got an op coming up. I'm going, I mean, I'm flying out soon. I want to check this. And I'm like, really? I said, well, I tell you what, man, I said, I'm retired. I was about to, you know, I, I've been doing X, Y, Z for a little bit of a while. And I was about to go back to school just to keep myself busy. I said, but if, if you're going to, if you're doing work, I said, I will put my boots back on. I'll go to work for you. I said, I'll, yeah. I'll do this with you. And he was like, he honestly sized me up. And he's like, are you serious? I was like, if you're serious that this is worth doing and it's what you it, what what you're saying, three weeks later, we were in Mexico. Um, and we've been together ever since. And we haven't, we haven't quit trucking. Um, it's, yeah. it's real. And that's, you know. And it validates to your, both your positions and, you know, the fact that I've seen, you know, both of you on different podcasts and stuff like that. You can tell you guys gel together really, really well. It almost become really, really tight with each other, which is nice to see because that's what we need in the community. You mentioned before, you know, there's a lot of people trying to make money off of this and then their egos get involved. And that's a huge issue within the community ufology. So seeing you guys sort of gel together and say, no, this is a, a united, you know, uh, thing. That's, that's cool. I like seeing that. That's, that's what we need. Right. It's been hard to explain to my, it was hard to explain to my wife and kids at first when offers were coming through. I, I had offers early on to host shows. Um, I had a couple of, I had an offer to host, to take over hosting a pretty, um, pretty famous um, primetime UFO type TV show. And, and I, I turn, when I say I had to turn it down, I don't think I really wanted to do it, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, but, but I had to turn it down because it just, it was not going to, I was never going to get to move the subject forward again. I'm not in the way that I wanted to, in a lasting way that had checks and balances and legislative support, and oversight. Um, I, I see the big picture. Thousands, yeah. thousands of people have been, as we said earlier, traumatized by this subject, whether psychologically, whether physically, um, we can do better. I think we can do better in a lot of ways. And I finally found something that I'm, I'm willing to put all my effort into to make better for everybody else. So uh, I, I get as much out of this as anybody else. Nice. Louis, did you have a, a, a final question for our guest today? Yeah, no, more of just a comment. Uh, you know, it's nice to hear that, you know, well, you, how you described Lou Elizondo and both you guys put your boots on to work together, you know, keep each other, keep each other honest and on point. It's like having a good workout buddy, you know, the yeah. couple of days you don't want to go, you're, that's what your buddy is there for. And uh, you guys got a lot of credibility. You've had that public eye as well, you know, being on the History Channel and everything else. And you really made this accessible to the average person to kind of stop and think that, hey, maybe this isn't so crazy. So from a public aspect, thank you for doing that and for sharing, um, because it's not crazy people in Arkansas getting abducted and probed and dropped in a field somewhere. It's legitimate people, high security clearance, trained observers, and it's hard for them. There's still a stigma and uh, good for you for not not giving a shit about that and just, you know, yeah. getting out there and uh, and turning down the big buck and not selling out and just having your eye on the price. So uh, it's refreshing for sure. Um, we try to only have people on the show that are open minded, credible. You know, we vet everybody and uh, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us the chance. Love to do it again. Love to have Lou on one day. That'd be amazing. Right. So. 
uh, yeah, for me, it was more of a, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me be a part. Thanks for uh, sharing in our, our happy little circle of love, you know, and uh, <laughs> do it again anytime you like. I'm really, and, I'm really honored to be here. I really am. And Sean, where can people find you? I know we got skyfort.org, which we forgot to talk about, but maybe you can just explain that really quickly and where people can find you on social media. Uh, skyfort.org is the, is the website for my company, um, Skyfort LLC. We are a think tank and a strategic, a stratcom company. And a, a we, we also on our website, sorry, I don't usually talk about the company. Um, we talk about, you know, moving the subject forward, incubating new tech, meaning, you know, talking about it, getting the right people looking at it. Um, in the end, it's really about making sure that as many people take this as seriously as possible. It's not a money making venture, but we knew that the way people look at things in the world, if you're just a person, you must have a motive. If you're a company, oh, suddenly you're a, you're something we can just take seriously. Frankly, it's just that simple in a lot of ways. Um, People can find me online at Minty Hyperspace, M-I-N-T-Y, H-Y-P-E-R-S-P-A-C-E. That's where I am on all platforms. I'm not on all platforms, only a few of them, only Twitter and Instagram, I think. Um, But um, I'm pretty inundated with with communications these days. I try to get through everything. I don't get a chance to answer everything, Um, but I do love interacting with folks. And um, it was really an honor to be here. I, I want to say really quick that what you guys do is almost more important than what I do because you're having the serious podcast. It would be a lot easier for you to become famous, be more polarized, say a lot of nonsense, get a lot more views. Um, the fact that you're having somebody like me on instead of a lot of other people that might make a louder noise, um, yeah. I really appreciate that. I really do. No, it's a labor is, of love. Yeah. You do this for labor free. Of love, we are not making yeah. a penny off of this. This is just love of love of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Make it work. Yeah, perfect. Sean Cahill, thank you so much for joining us on UAP Studies today. It's been it's been a pleasure. Likewise, thanks, guys.